Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and the book is named Ardor and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it and I think you'll love it. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week we have Kim Sorrell. She's an entrepreneur, director of humanitarian organization, author, and speaker. She devoted a year in search of the true meaning of love, and she actually found it. And her award-winning and best-selling book, Love Is... Chronicles her sometimes funny, sometimes scary, always enlightening journey that led to life-changing discoveries found mainly on the streets of Haiti. Kim is now on a mission to change the world and the power of love. Welcome to the show, Kim. How are you? Mike, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited and I have a lot of developing questions. I'm certainly going to ask you a lot of questions about Haiti because it's always been a subject of fascination to me, um, especially because it's its own country on the same island as another country. And that's always uh, puzzled me. But before we get into that, and of course, love and how you found it and what it is, I would love to just know the standard three questions we ask everyone, which is um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you belong to? Well, gosh, you know, you are a man, I am a woman. And so that typically is not a good first question, (laughs) but I am 61 years old. And I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm still in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So must mean I liked it, even (laughs) though there's a winter storm going on right now. And I'm a boomer. I'm the end. I'm the tail end of the boomers. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm the tail end of Gen X or the beginning of millennial. Yeah. And it's funny because we tell our guests to listen to an episode ahead of time. And I know you did. um, But I one of the reasons that we asked them to do that is so they know that we're going to ask them how old they are, because it has definitely uh, rubbed a couple people the wrong way. But it's also a (laughs) a conversation about life and death. So (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. So actually, let's let's go into the anything uh, in a weird, weird order. But I would just love to know that um, Haiti especially in America, and I'm pretty sure internationally, does not have the greatest reputation. It has like a very low uh, longevity rate for people living there. It's got a lot of poverty and just a lot of, you know, I've read different versions that say it is literally the most impoverished country in the world or it's in the top three. People can argue and fight about that. That's not my job on the show at all. But I am curious, like, why would you pick Haiti of all places to spend uh, that much time? Well, it, it's uh, interesting. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. It's going to sound like an odd beginning to the answer of your question. But I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he passed away six weeks after that. Wow. So at 47 years old, I was alone and not sure what I was going to do. And uh, when I was healthy enough to finally go back to work, I thought I'd kind of take things slowly. And I happened to run into a man who was running an organization that my father and I had started 10 years before that. And I said, gosh, do you need any help? You know, what about bookkeeping? And So I started January 1st of that year as a part-time bookkeeper. And 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to 24-7. And within a couple of weeks, I was in Haiti. And then I spent at least part of every month in Haiti for the next several years after that. Wow. That totally adds up and totally makes sense. And um, so 
how much I'm not interested in like our stereotypes true or not, but like how much of the uh, media speculation and also just the general, like when you mention to people you went to Haiti and you hear things like what I said, how much of that is actually like resonant and true and how much is just completely fake or, or what's the real deal in your opinion? Yeah, well, it's uh, definitely the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Uh, definitely one of the poorest in the world. Haiti is, uh, it's, so hard. And right now it's really bad. A year and a half ago, they killed the president. The government has never really been all that great. Gangs are pretty powerful in Haiti. They've taken over some streets, some major highways. They've taken over a lot of things. That's a lot of kidnappings. People are dying. And it's this beautiful country with wonderful, incredible people living in some of the worst conditions in the world. And, and, is it actually true that, because I've never been to the Dominican Republic, but like, is it actually true that like, it's a totally different world if you just cross this imaginary human made line? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, there are uh, pockets there. there Actually, there's a lot of poverty in the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. It is not as thick a poverty as it is in Haiti. The average wage, I'm sure, is higher than what an average person makes in a day in the Dominican Republic than it is in Haiti. Haiti, it's like the average is like $2 a day or some ridiculous number like that. And the Dominican Republic, there's a lot more opportunity for jobs, uh, but there are also pockets of um, Haitian communities that are just very, very poor. It's kind of like every country has people that will come in and do the work that the people that live in that country won't do. And that's true of the Dominican Republic with Haitians. Like they have the worst jobs in the Dominican Republic, um, working the coffee plantations and that kind of thing, sugarcane, uh, which is a, just tough jobs. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting. And um, with, with your own cancer diagnosis, if I'm, if I heard the story correctly, you got it slightly before your husband got his, correct? Right. Yeah. Four months. So uh, I know this is like a weird question, but it, it is a literally like has, I have to ask it on Coffin Talk. What what was it like that inflection moment of like all of a sudden you go from being like everyone's concerned, everyone's worried about you to like, oh, my God, uh, you know, it's arguable. But I would say pancreatic cancer has like a much larger death rate than than breast cancer currently, at least. Uh, what, what was that like? Like, what was that experience like of, of like having to I, I'm assuming you had to like parcel out your fear of your own mortality and also your self-concern and kind of like start reworking it to include your husband. Is that in any way accurate? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's not inarguably uh, a higher death rate. It definitely is. Pancreatic cancer, there's, there's just not a cure. And there's uh, different types of breast cancer. So it kind of depends on, on what kind of breast cancer you have, but um, a lot higher cure rate for sure. Uh, and so when my husband was diagnosed, it was two years almost to the day after my father-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then so we, we knew, we knew the road, we knew the diagnosis, the prognosis, we knew more than we should have known or wanted to know about pancreatic cancer. And so uh, it was a weird, it was just crazy to have two diagnoses at the same time. I was well into my stuff and I was going to be just fine still going through stuff, but I knew, you know, I was going to survive it and I was going to be, I was going to be fine. But we also then knew that my husband was not going to be fine. And so we just prayed. 
we're praying people and, you know, pray for a miracle or, you know, a miracle of heaven, but that he wouldn't be in pain. And uh, six weeks, and we had a great six weeks together, amazing six weeks together, watching Cash Cab and playing gin rummy and, you know, whatever, just having a good time at home. And it wasn't until the last morning he woke up on a Sunday morning and pained. And we'd had great hospice care, just wonderful palliative care. And so he was not in pain all those six weeks. And then all of a sudden was, and I called the hospice nurse and she came right over and, uh, and I said, guy, do I call my kids? And, and she said, no, no, you know, lots of time. And I was behind him. He was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was holding him from behind because I didn't want him to fall off. And I could just feel his agony, just feel it. And so I just, I whispered in his ear, I just said, oh, baby, just go. And he never took another breath. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so, it's like beautiful only in this peculiar way that those of us who have watched someone die, like understand when they're in that much pain, like, there's just a a beauty when you, you let them mentally release because they're holding on for everyone except themselves usually at that point. And I think this is a good point to ask, what do you think happens when you die? But I'd like to tailor it to one, what do you actually think happens when you die? The normal question. Two, did that change with your husband's death and with your cancer diagnosis? If that was ever something you talked about. Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. Well, my husband was this incredible man. We had a great marriage. He was an incredible, faithful, wonderful guy who uh, believed in God and prayed every day and uh, was just very faithful. And so he didn't fear death. Uh, there were times when uh, throughout the six weeks, I would just start crying and he would just hold me and say, don't cry for me. You, you're the one that has to stay here. So I believe in in heaven. I believe in an afterlife, whatever that looks like. And my husband also believes in an afterlife. And we did before our diagnosis and did after our diagnosis. The one thing that changed was uh, seeing the process with my husband because it, it wasn't like it was only that instant. Even though he wasn't suffering and we had this great six weeks, there were a few moments toward the end during the six weeks where he just was not there. I looked in his eyes and he was somewhere else. It's almost like there was a transition from life to death. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was very interesting. And eventually he came back and then all was well, you know, whatever. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting thing to witness. Wow. And so what do you think is going to happen when you die? I think I'm going to see him again, which will be great because I miss him. And how much of your current life and the way you live it is affected by that belief or would be shattered if it suddenly dawned on you that it's not true? Uh, that's an interesting question. I would say that I hope my life wouldn't be any different, knowing or not knowing, uh, knowing, finding out that it's true or finding out that it's not true. I mean, I, I think that 
as human beings, we should live the best life that we can and be kind and treat other people well, I think is about the most important thing that we can do. And I think that should be true of people that believe in an afterlife or don't believe in an afterlife. Yeah, that's really well said. And um, I mean, you sound happy, you sound positive. Obviously, we're going to get into your book and how you found love. Um, but I also find it interesting because your book is about finding love, but it sounds like you'd already found love with your husband. So maybe we should start there. Uh, what do you mean by finding love? Well, the the true meaning of love. It just seems like there's this this mystery around love, right? Like Ed Sheeran sings about it and Nicholas Sparks writes about it and, <laughs> you know, whatever. But what is it really, you know? And people think of love and they think of love with a partner, but love is well beyond just a partner, you know, whatever. And so, but, but what is it? You know, I, I figured that I wanted to live the best life I could to honor my husband and uh, thinking that that would be the most honoring way um, to live for my husband. So I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. And so I believe that if you love, then, then that's the best thing that you can do. But what is love really? So I decided I need to to figure it out, figure out what love is so that I knew I was doing it right. Well, please go on. Let's let's hear what happened kind of in chronological order now. Um, so you decided to honor him and you know how you want to honor him. And then you're also going to love as a part of honoring him. So what, what happened next? Yeah, well, so I, I decided I'd dedicate a year to figuring it out. And I have to tell you, Mike, I have a hard time committing to an entree when I go to a restaurant. <laughs> So to dedicate a year to something was quite a stretch for me, but I decided that's what I was going to do. And so I took the 2000 year old poem that you heard a lot of weddings, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, et cetera. And I decided I would take one word a month and figure out, well, what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And the things that I discovered just blew my mind. Nothing that I'd ever seen or been taught before. And uh, we just have a lot of love wrong and, and it's passed down to us, right? Our parents, grandparents, teachers, whoever teach us about love, demonstrate love to us. But if they don't know, then, then how are we going to know? And uh, so I just think it's not been handled great all along. So what would be your best advice to a young person who has had their first heartbreak and they're either getting jaded, already jaded, or they're about to like, join team F love. I don't care. <laughs> What's your best advice to someone in that like horrible mental state that most of us have been in at some point? I haven't heard of that particular team. I don't know if they're better than the <laughs> Detroit Lions. I, you know, they probably are. But um, anyway, I, I would say that if you understand what love is, then you understand that it's not something that you fall in and out of. It's not something that, that should, should crush you. It's uh, something that you are. And then how you decide to live it is up to you. But when you are devastated, it's because you're questioning yourself. You know, were you not worthy of love? Did you do something wrong? What happened? You thought things were great. And all of a sudden he walks out of your life. She walks out of, her, out of your life. And what happened? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. They may be a great person, just not your great person. It, it's okay. We learn probably more from our breakups than we do from the great times. So take it, learn from it, and realize there's life 
after bad relationships, life goes on. It came to pass and it, it will pass. But uh, don't be so hard on yourself because it's really what it comes down to is being hard on yourself and wondering if you're even worthy of love. And the answer is yes. Yes, you are worthy of love. And that it's kind of funny timing, but um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't even remember who I was listening to, but they it was not their own words. They were attributing someone else. So it's even more com complicated for me to trace the origin of the quote. But I did like the quote and the, the person said, it took me a long time to realize that love is an action. It's not a thing. Um, it sounds like you're you're working towards and, and speaking about the same thing. Does that kind of match your experience? Well, yeah, no, that, that's a great quote. I, I would go take it a little bit further than that. You know, we quite often think of love as a feeling or an emotion. But if you watch a scary movie, that night you go to bed, you hear every bump, every creak, every everything, and you are scared, right? You're living in this fear. But it goes away because we don't live in the fear. We don't stay in the fear. But love, you don't hang it up when you get home. You don't put it in the closet. You don't put it in a drawer at work. Love is all-encompassing. Love is who you are. Love is walking, talking, living, breathing, giving, doing. Love love is who you are, and love is who you should be to other people. That's that's great. And um, I imagine when you're an American abroad in Haiti that you can feel a lot of love from locals, but you can also feel a lot of resentment because, especially specifically the United States, we have a, like, you know, a pretty awful track record with that nation up to and including the recent assassination of their president, which has been speculated to have been tied into our country and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not asking you to get political, not at all, but I am curious, how do you respond to someone that you're trying to love who's clearly resenting it and doesn't seem to want it? Well, I think it doesn't matter what country you're in. When you get a response like that, um, it's it's their response. One one thing about love is, uh, you know, you hear that it's a two-way street. Like if you're there to help people, you know, they should be happy, accept your help and love you for it. But, but love is a one-way street. You have no control over anyone but yourself. You bring a baby home, you've got control, total control. When they eat, when they sleep, when you give them a bath. But then six, seven, eight months later, your Tupperware is all over your kitchen floor. Your pots and pans are banging. And you realize you have lost all control and you will never get it back again. So you control no one. So you give and you are kind because that's what love does. And if you have these expectations of getting something back, that's not love. You know, that's, that's like a transaction. That's like me giving you money for a pair of jeans. If I give you love to get love, that's no longer love because love doesn't do that. So the response isn't, when you understand love, you understand that the response isn't what matters. The love that you give is the thing that matters. That's, I mean, very profound, very well said. Yeah, and it's as if you have a spy camera in our house because we're raising a little one-and-a-half-year-old right now. And um, I'm definitely familiar with that feeling. I also have a seven-year-old, and I've definitely felt different forms of love and resentment from him at different times, and they're not logical, and I try not to let it bother me. But, you know, every every parent knows that experience. If, like, a person's, like, yelling at you, go away, and you're, like, trying to be loving, is, is the loving thing to do to just go away? Yeah, sometimes it is. You know, if you're in a relationship that is abusive, that is harmful to you, that in, in any way, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, you have somebody pushing you away that 
that doesn't want to be in your life, that that's damaging, you know, that's hurtful. But, you know, somebody hurting you, somebody abusing you, sometimes uh, the best thing you can do is walk away. And that is love. And it's not love to stay. Because if you stay, you're enabling the person to still live in that same behavior. You're not helping them to to get out of that behavior because it can become a habit treating people poorly. So so sometimes love would say, walk, yeah, walk away, walk away. Cool. Thank you. I think that's really helpful for me and others to hear. Um, and then I, I do have like a pretty large question I want to ask you. But before I get into that, because we were talking a lot about your book, um, and it sounds great. And I especially love as a writer that you took that famous like poem slash saying that we all hear at the weddings and then you divided it. And I'm assuming that, you know, each chapter probably applies to it and all that. And I, and I just like that style. So I am curious in your biography, you talk about how it's sometimes funny, sometimes scary. What's like one of the funnier stories in, and what's one of the scarier stories? Oh goodness. Well, uh, one of the scariest stories was I was chased by a motorcycle gang. That, that was a little crazy. That was a little harrowing. Um, and, uh, one of the funniest things is I slept outside with tarantulas and snakes and chupacabras or whatever it is that's lurking in the bushes of Haiti and, and was scared to death. Uh, and twice woke up. I, it was a five night stint where I had to sleep outside and two different times I woke up because it was something on my leg and I thought I was going to be dismembered and and poisoned and Haiti probably didn't have the anti-venom and I probably couldn't get airlifted to Miami in time to save a leg or whatever. But I, uh, both times when I looked to see what it was, it was a chicken. (laughs) That's awesome. I was listening that whole time and I was like, I think she misheard the question. I said funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I've actually literally had nightmares where like a spider especially is crawling on me and I've like woken up to find one on me. So it's funny. And what about with the motorcycle gang? Was it uh, like, were they specifically chasing you because of something you've done or was it uh, something that kind of developed? Yeah, no, they were definitely chasing because of something that I did. I they had crossed the border um, going into the Dominican Republic and I didn't get stamped on the Haitian side because they changed the system and whatever, whatever. But anyway, so uh, I took a motorcycle over to back to the Haitian side to get passport stamped, but negotiated a price before I went and then came back on the motorcycle and the guy wanted more money. And I said, well, no, you know, we negotiated a price. I gave him what I said I would. Well, so then when I was driving away after getting my Dominican stamp, I was with two American friends, both men. We were driving this truck back to the DR. And uh, all of a sudden we're hearing, go, go. One of the guys was in the back of the truck watching our tools. And and he's yelling for us to go faster. And we're like, well, what's going on? And then all of a sudden we realized that rocks, rocks, not pebbles, not small things, but big rocks were being thrown at us. And so my friend that was driving just put the hammer down, put, you know, the gas down as far as he could and was driving like Mario Andretti. These motorcycles were coming up alongside of us. They were behind us. They were trying to get us to pull over. I swear we were taking the curve on two wheels sometimes. It was crazy. It was crazy. And when we finally got far enough away that they stopped chasing us, my friend said, what was that all about? You know, why were these guys chasing us? And I said, well, the guy wanted more money. And I think he was mad. I didn't give him more money. And he said, well, how much did he want? And I said, well, $5. 
And so I literally risked all of our lives for $5. And that probably wasn't the wisest choice on my part. I understand, though. It's it's a matter of principle. And we've all been there. It's, it's a very strange feeling. I even heard um, a hilarious stand-up comedian talking about how he has enough money to give the homeless guy outside his building like $500 every day and it wouldn't hurt him. But the fact that he stopped saying thank you when he handed him a five pissed him off so much that he just stopped giving him money. And I, <laughs> I, I could really relate and understand. I was like, I am not rich. I'm not wealthy. I'm not famous. But in, indignity is indignity um, and principle is principle. Um, so going back, uh, when I asked the question about what generation do you belong to, if any, uh, one of the reasons I ask it is that Right around the time I was starting this podcast, um, the media started talking about a, a culture war in our country, and I'm thoroughly convinced that there is no culture war. There's just a desire to sell uh, advertising, and so they want to call it a culture war, and they want us all to get mad at each other. Um, with that said, I am curious. Some people do get angry at older generations, and some older generations do get angry at younger generations. It's not anything new. Um how do you apply like what you learned about love to helping others understand how to love people who like literally have such a different ideology from them that they actually want to see society and the world go in a completely different direction? Well, the beauty of love is, is again, you don't control anybody. So, so love is on you, right? So when you love the right way, you recognize that we are all unique and we are all different. And it is okay for different people to have different opinions. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. You can listen. It's interesting to listen to somebody with an opinion that's different than yours. You might learn something. The biggest thing that you learn is we're all human. You know, people are people all over the world. But love allows people to have different opinions. And, and so instead of confrontations, you have conversations. And it doesn't mean you got to go to coffee with them every day. It doesn't mean you got to be best friends. But you can listen to people. There's nothing wrong with that. I think sometimes there's this confusion about people and the things they do or people and their memberships, you know, in a political team or whatever team. You mentioned a team earlier. So whatever team people want to put themselves in, whatever kind of label people give themselves, because love doesn't label, but we label. And uh that you don't have to be a part of that team, it, but it's okay for somebody else to, because it's up to them because they control themselves. So love would say that you love the person, you know, like before you married your wife, your beautiful bride, you were head over heels, right? And she was head over heels with you. It's like, she couldn't wait probably to walk down that aisle. You guys couldn't wait to say I do. But then you left your dirty underwear on the bathroom floor and she got so mad and she wondered why the heck she married this slug of a man that would leave his dirty underwear on the bathroom floor and wondered about her love. But she shouldn't have wondered about her love. You shouldn't wonder about your love because you are not leaving dirty underwear on the bathroom floor. That's not who you are. She didn't fall in love with the action. She fell in love with the person. So we love the people. We might not like things that they do, but it's the person that you love and separating the things people do from the person, this unique masterpiece of a person is the healthiest way to look at it, I guess, is that that if you constantly are putting your love on the line based on what people do, you're going to be a mess. You're not going to know when do you love, when do you not love, but love just loves. 
like and love are two different things. And you cannot like some of the things that people do, but you love people for their uniqueness. Something that's definitely how I've convinced myself over many, many years to understand the concept of acceptance and to actually work on it in my own life. So thank you. That was very eloquent and well phrased, just like almost every single thing that has come out of your mouth since we started talking, even before I hit record. So um, I really appreciate you and I appreciate the message. Um, I never end the show with me just ranting and talking. I always let my guest just kind of give whatever piece they want to the world. So um, whatever it is you'd like most to say to our audience, please um, tell them. I would just say, figure out love, figure out ways to love people and, and recognize that, you know, if the Mona Lisa went up for sale, who knows how many millions and millions of dollars it would get. And it's because it's a one of a kind masterpiece. And so are you, you are a one of a kind masterpiece. There's nobody who's ever been exactly like you. There will never be anyone exactly like you. Nobody's walked in your shoes every minute of every day. Nobody, you are the only one of you. So love yourself, love yourself for your uniqueness, for who you are, because you are special and incredible. And when you love yourself, it's so much easier to love other people. Oh my gosh, I absolutely love it. I love talking about love. I love using the word love. I have definitely been embarrassed in my life saying love to people when they didn't expect it and didn't think it was coming. And I'm not talking about in dating situations, but I just think if the world could use anything, it's more people talking about love, being loving, and being comfortable with the term. So thank you, Kim Sorrell, for being exactly who you are. Thank you for writing your book. And uh, obviously the notes for how to find that and find her will be in the podcast bio, and you can just Google her name. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, And to everyone listening at home, we really appreciate you and we love you and we appreciate the subscriptions that are rolling in at mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com please head over it's free you get a weekly newsletter tied into the podcast and if you want to go the extra mile and help support us we absolutely could use your help Um, sign up for a premium subscription it comes with bonus podcasts and other awesome things including books I write thanks again to Kim and my name is Mike Oppenheim this has been another episode of Coffin Talk and we will see you soon walking along when i hear this song then i'm walking to you